Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 150 with my guest, Bobby Previtt. Bobby is a drum set player and a composer and improviser who uh, wrote a piece for soul percussion called Terminals, a five-movement piece with uh, basically percussion, uh, quartet accompaniment with improvising soloist. Um, I don't really know how to describe Bobby other than he's somebody you probably want to have in your life. He's a great person, and he has more energy and passion for the things he works on than most anybody else I've ever come across. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I certainly did, and I love Bobby. So uh, without further ado, Bobby Previtt. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. (laughs) Uh, Well, hey, Bobby Previtt, um, before I get too far along here. um, Okay, Bobby, I am grateful for... um, you doing this with me and I've known you now for, I don't know how long through, uh, through so percussion. I feel like I want to say at least 10 years. Would that be fair to say? I think yeah, it's getting on to that, Josh. Yeah. I think 10 years could be, I think it was, we did the terminals in 2013, maybe 11. Okay, but then that's when we started it, or was that when we premiered it? No, that's when we premiered it. So we knew we knew each other before then, certainly because we were rehearsing. Yeah, I think ten years is good. Yeah, well, and and I'm. It's interesting to me, like you know what I what I know about you. My introduction to you, if I didn't know anything else about you, would be like, oh, this is Bobby. He went he went to the University of Buffalo, studied with Jan Williams. He's a percussion nerd like me, and mm-hmm. um, he does weird percussion ensemble stuff. But then what I learned about you, which was like, I think most of your life is like, you hang out with really badass like improvisers and you come from that world too. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> like people like, that's how I met John Medeski. That's how I got to play with, um, uh, Jen Shu and other folks who I just had never, ever even imagined existed. <laughs> and, right. and just hearing you talk about music, hearing about the way you play music and just, you have I'm just saying a lot of things. So I don't. I don't have a question. I'm just telling you what what I've learned from you. And and you have this unstoppable um, fire hose type of energy when it comes to getting music together in rehearsal and then on stage. Like there's, you're never like halfway on. And I've always respected that about you. And I'm I'm just kind of curious. I wanted to start with you, maybe like as as like baby baby Bobby. And and figure out uh, how in the hell did you get to that? <laughs> um, so all of that said, I don't again like I don't have a question maybe in there, but I'm just kind of curious like what the tree that is now Bobby Previtt at however old you are. I'm going to say 32. Um, what did this? You. What did the seed look like? Well, wow, you know how far back should I go? I mean, I was brought up in a, um, uh, a you know a lower middle class a Catholic Italian family in a very conservative town, Niagara Falls, New York, very strange town. I might add, um, there's a really great book. I think, uh, Niagara Falls, it's called, uh, uh, something like, uh, truth, power and lies. Um, it, it, Niagara Falls is uh, a bizarre, was a bizarre place to grow up because, um, you have the falls, which is, you know, the eighth wonder of the world. And which is very, very um, cosmopolitan, right? I mean, everyone knows about the falls, right? But no one's 
but no one knows about the town of Niagara Falls. But I've traveled all over the world, as you do as a musician. And, and finally, people say, well, where are you from, if it ever comes up? And I say, Niagara Falls. And everyone knows the shoot to Niagara. Yeah, sure, everyone knows what Niagara Falls is. But no one knows anything about it, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the town itself, so the town itself in Niagara Falls was very, very conservative Italian town. And... Um, in fact, uh, it was it was so Italian that Niagara Falls didn't have an Italian mayor for hundreds of years for, you know, until kind of recently because it, they didn't need one. You see, so they always put the Irish guys uh, were the mayors, but the Italians were, you know, right. would, they, they ran the town. So um, so you had this very world. <clears throat> You know, I used to, so as a kid, it was very provincial and, you know, Italian and conservative. And, but then you would go, I would go down to the falls and I would have my favorite spots. I'd had this one spot I loved to watch where the water would eddy a certain way. And, um, but there would be people there in turbans and, you know, like it, it was just all people from all over the world. Right. Mm-hmm. But it was, they were only there only within the three block radius of the falls, you know, Mm -hmm. like uh, as soon as you got past that, it was completely, you know, back to provincial USA. Um, So it was very, I think it was very um, schizophrenic. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the same thing with my musical upbringing, because I came from a very unmusical family. I mean, we didn't even have a record player. Um, my, my parents never listened to music. My mother did like to dance. What did they do for a living? My father worked in a, a factory. Uh, he, uh, he was a, uh, foreman in a factory and my mother of course never worked. Uh, you know, my father wouldn't allow her to work. So she was the <clears> house. <throat> and, uh, we lived in a very small house. My brother, my, our house was so small that my brother had to sleep on a sofa bed in the living room. Um, my, my, I slept with in, in a room with my sister until it just got untenable, right? I, she got too, too old mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> to be sleeping with her younger brother mm-hmm. in the same room. And so I had to sort of sleep in the basement. It was, a, we had a very small house. And, um, so, um, so my father, you know, he worked shift work and, um, he would go to work uh, yeah, all day. And, you know, when I would, uh, uh, you know, and I would hang around in, in Niagara Falls. And so, um, you know, Niagara Falls, it, it had the East Coast uh, mob was headquartered in Niagara Falls, close to Niagara Falls. Um, there was all this pollution, of course, in Niagara Falls. Um, Niagara Falls had had or and has more toxic dumps per uh, capita or per square foot than any place in the United States, maybe any place on earth. Wow. So you remember the anthrax whole scare, right? Right. Well, right. Remember, remember Tom Brokaw, the, you know, Tom Brokaw, the, you know, the, the anchor for mm-hmm. NBC. NBC. Uh, well, remember when he got an anthrax letter, you know, and uh, the dudes had to come in and, you know, with the hazmat suits and yeah. pulverize desk because it was opened on his desk so they came in and pulverized his desk well that desk that pulverized desk is buried in niagara falls so <laughs> just a little well i just story. i mean i i i the 
the sort of commonality I share with you is growing up in the Midwest in the area of the of the um, the Great Lakes. Like that, that's where a lot of just historically speaking, the reason that pollution exists is because when industry started, that I mean, surrounding those lakes, that bo- having bodies of water where your shipping could drop stuff off, like that's that was the main reason that stuff existed. And now it's <laughs> like. Um, you know, at the time, maybe now that's not the way those lakes are used, but that's why, you know, but that's also partially probably why Buffalo became a cultural hub in addition to just being a well, sure. a sort of um, worldly, like like you said, the eighth wonder. Buffalo also was a port, like where people dropped stuff off and like, yeah. and that's but also why a- there's people with turbans and other things there. You know, you get people from all over the world coming. 15 miles on the Erie Canal, right. you know, I mean, the now connected buffalo and and that was all that was all destroyed by air travel you mm-hmm. know buffalo is the queen city of the lakes and charlie parker would come through and dizzy gillespie would come through and all these musicians would come through it was a it was an important city um and uh but you know they would dump there were toxic dumps they would just dump right into the fall like just they were right on the falls they yeah. were right 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 next to the falls were all the factories and we used to say there was tons of chemical plants also in in Niagara Falls and there were some days where i would go out and i would my nose would be burning and i would mm. just i was a kid i didn't know what it was i would just say oh well, this is one of those days that your nose burns i don't know why but <laughs> And it's like, but it was like literally. So then, you know, finally, you know, all that got cleaned up. But Niagara Falls remained a very bizarre town. And, you know, and so my family not having being a musical family, um, we watched television. So and we went to church. So all the music that I heard was was like either sacred Catholic liturgical music or television music, right? <laughs> so that was the two musics that I grew up with. I never heard any any classical music. I never heard any jazz. I heard like pop music on the radio, television theme songs, mm-hmm. and <laughs> organ music. And so somehow these things all jumbled together. And, um, you know, I uh, that's kind of, you know, where my sort of first musical thing thing happened and then i got older and um well I, 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 I don't, i'm sorry to interrupt i don't want to interrupt you but like when you it's interesting i don't think i knew the thing about like just the types of music you grew up around and then when the minute you said church i was i immediately i don't know whether this is accurate so this could just be me me making some weird free association so tell me if this is bullshit but like i immediately thought of the movement from terminals with xena yeah like, oh, with Z- like, like my part is just like, it, it just feels to me like that whole piece is just like a huge organ. It's like the organ in Mahler two or whatever, you know, it's just, but except that's all it is, you know, and then Zena's on top of it improvising. Um, I'm sure that, that I'm sure, I'm yeah. sure that's comfortable. Well, I'm and, curious and, for you as a kid though, like where, where was like, you have all that stuff, but where was the first time where you started to participate in a musical thing? Oh, that's a good story, Josh. <laughs> I like good stories, Bobby. You know, I mean, okay, so I was uh, 13 years old, and um, 
you know, I've been the kind, I was the kid in the neighborhood who made up all the games. You know, I would make up these games like we're going to do this. And, you know, this is because, you know, back then you sort of did make up things because there were less things, you know. So so I would always like we're going to do, you know, the game goes like this. And, and I would always be frustrated because I would make up these games that the object wasn't to win the game. Mm-hmm. It was to kind of have I couldn't express this as a kid, but the idea was to make it artful. You know, oh. and I would try to explain that to my 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 mates, and they just <laughs> didn't understand. They kept trying to win. I was going, no, it's not about winning. You have to like look. It has to look beautiful, and you know. So you, you can see, I was kind of a bit of a, a weirdo. So at thirteen, my cousin, who got everything usually, and I got nothing, but that's another story, um, got a drum set. Right. And I was like, oh, my God. So I went over there and um, I would play his drum set. I would be allowed to play his drum set. Okay, my father, before he became a a factory worker, went to barber school and he hated it. He went all the way through barber school. Fifteen minutes after he graduated, he quit. But of course, Italian family, he would cut all the hair. Right. Mm Because that's what Italian families do. Right. They Right. So, I don't think that's a fair thing to assume people know. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what my Italian family did. But just that if you had a skill in an Italian family, you did that skill. My Uncle John made the wine and he came with the wine every, you know, every week with the two bottles of wine for our whole family for the week. Right. He'd come with the big, big jugs of wine. But it was terrible. <laughs> so my father would take the wine and say, thank you, Uncle John. And then he would pour the wine down the drain. And um, in the bottles, he would pour it like Gallo, which was also terrible. But imagine how terrible. Not as, not as terrible. Not as terrible. And so Uncle John never knew. But <laughs> so if you had a skill, you applied that skill to the rest of the family. So my father had the skill of cutting hair. So naturally we were going to, people were going to pay to have their hair cut. My father would cut their hair. So my father's brother and his son um, was, his son was my age and he got a drum set. And so uh, the, the deal was when I went over there, when, to, when he went, we know went over there to cut my cousin Russell's hair, I could play the drums. Only during the time that he got his haircut, which mm-hmm. was 15 minutes. So I got to play the drums 15 minutes a month. And it was the most amazing 15 minutes. I would look forward to this 15 minutes for the entire month. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, here it comes. And I would practice on my pad, you know, everything I wanted to work out. And then I would get there and they'd say, okay, Bobby, go. And I would just... <laughs> play the drums for 15 minutes and that was it and then i have to stop and imagine this you know now oh, I, I, have could, workshop- I could there's nobody i could imagine more clearly than you doing this bobby <laughs> <laughs> and you know so now sometimes i have workshops and i look at my students and you know if they're particularly if i have one that's not motivated or something i, I look at them like really I have to motivate you no you know <laughs> i was so highly motivated mm-hmm. I, of course, I wanted a drum set. And, you know, weirdly, I I started on guitar. I, I tried to play guitar. I didn't play guitar very well. But I always remember being able to play drums, to play the drums. You know, I'm sure that I couldn't really play very well, but I never remember that moment, Josh. You mm-hmm. know, I always remember that I sat down and the drums made perfect sense to me. The, the, the cymbals and the the 
tom toms and all you know because the drum set let's face it is a is a weirdo amalgamation is it an instrument or is it 10 instruments you know mm. no one really knows it's it's only an instrument because of for a hundred years people have been playing it as an instrument and all the great drummers have made the drum set one instrument but really it's an amalgamation of many instruments it's right you know from the from Turkey and the snare drum, which is kind of military, and tom toms from Africa. So it's all. Well, and it's diff- it's different from a clarinet in the sense that, like, yes, both are instruments, but like the clarinet, the like the low E flat on a clarinet or low C or whatever it is, like doesn't serve only one function traditionally. Like it's a note like every other. The kick drum or the hi hat, like those were like what you're doing is taking an instrument right that served one purpose whenever you had a marching band or a second line band or something and then you're putting it with one person to try to do all of those roles and i think what's interesting is i don't you know maybe this is a podcast for another time but like i would love to just pick your brain on the the lineage of drummers that changed the roles of each of those instruments within the drum set and how that sort of pushed music history forward like Absolutely. So you know, because it's it's a it's a made up instrument, an E flat on a clarinet down here and up there. It's kind of homogenous, mm-hmm, right? It's mm-hmm. the same sort of thing. But a drum set is wildly, it's a crazy instrument, mm-hmm. which is why I contend that the drum set is the most melodic instrument on earth. I really believe that. I believe that the drum set, even though it doesn't have an A or a B or a C, really. It's endlessly melodic. I, I feel like I can make endless melodies on the drum set forever be, because of that fact, because it's not limited to actual equal tempered notes. Well, and it's also so, it's also an instrument, though, that like, I mean, every, every instrument has this. But I've heard you also t- you, you said and I'm sort of paraphrasing what I remember you saying about like symbols are the last bastion of the charlatan or something like that, because you have this. Last refuge. Yeah, well and, and, and I and I mean that like there like it's a fine line, right? There's a there are there are people like Tony Williams who can play a hi hat or a ride cymbal for seventeen minutes straight and it never loses interest and it never loses its job, right? But then there are some people who play the ride cymbal to cover up everything else they're doing, you know, like and or, or, or famous crash. You know? Right, yeah, yeah. I don't so. what should I do? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like a crossfade on a video, you know. Do you, yeah, do you always yeah, use right. you crash a symbol, it takes a while to, you know, so then you can think, well, now what? You know? uh, yeah. Well, anyway, so sorry, we got sidetracked. But so you're 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 playing drum set 15 minutes a month. No, I'm playing drums at 15 minutes a month, and I'm all, I'm taken with the drums that I'm I I can barely play because I'm hyperventilating. I think it's so beautiful. The sounds, the way they go together, are the it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. And um, I decide, of course, well, I want a drum set mm-hmm. too, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, my father wasn't going to buy me the drum set. He didn't want. First off, he didn't want you know, to have to listen to it. Second off, he didn't want to want to spend the money. You have a small so, house, Bobby. Let's, let's not, let's give your, your dad some slack here a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we have a really small house. So I decide. Just okay, having, just having you by yourself in that small house is enough chaos for your poor, well, pa- your poor father. <laughs> well, we haven't even gotten to my brother. He was worse. Uh, so, you know, I decided to make my own drum set. I said, okay, so uh, I get it. Nobody's going to give me a drum set. 
you know, nobody's going to do this for me. So I'm going to go. I marched down to the paper, the Niagara Falls Gazette. I got a job as a paper boy. I saved and I saved ten dollars a week, put it under my socks and uh, never told anybody and waited until I had enough money to buy a drum set. But in the meantime, I made a drum set out of garbage cans. And, you know, my symbols were two aluminum pie plates that I nailed to plungers for um, for stands. My stands were plungers and I nailed my mother's aluminum pie plates. Oh my God, I'd put a nail through them. She was really pissed. And, you know, and I would ding and they would do, they sounded so cool. And I had my bass drum was a, my, my snare drum was just a box of junk because I couldn't make a snare drum. So I, I took a thin box and I put a bunch of junk in it you know, mm-hmm. and then I, it rattled and that was my snare drum. And I had, you know, a kind of rubber baskets where my toms, that was easy. My bass drum was a, a heavy garbage can turned on its side, but my bass drum pedal was my greatest creation. I made a bass drum pedal out of linoleum and a coat hanger and a rubber ball. I, I put these two pieces of linoleum together and I, I took the coat hanger and wound it around a baseball bat and made it into a spring. And then I put it between the, the right between the, the linoleum. And then I stuck one part up and I put a ball on it. And that was my pedal. And it worked perfectly. And I played those drums for one year in my basement. One year until I saved enough money to buy this drum set right here. That drum set is my paper route drum set from 1965, a Rogers holiday model. And they are just killer, right? Um, I was going to say this, you're, you know, having watched you tune your drum set enough, um, you know, it's not like I've been touring with you extensively for all 10 years that I've known you, but sitting behind you and just sort of being a fly on the wall while you make your sounds do what you want them to do on the drum set and, and, and rental kits that you backline or whatever, where we go, like, Knowing that, knowing your very first, I mean, that was a sound that imprinted on your brain, whether you knew it or not. And so when you got that nice new Rogers kit, I'm sure there was a tiny part of you that was like, you know, you made that Rogers kit like that. Your, your sound is, is your, your baby sound still like it's still there. You know, you, you had a bass drum, like you had a nice big round trash can that probably was a little more resonant than other trash cans, you know, like exactly. that's very. <laughs> That's right, because it was. Doo, 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 yeah, like you don't that, play. Yeah. You don't play a kick like a short rock kick. It's a very resonant no. sound. <clears throat> yeah, no, I like to have. I like them to speak. And you know, I didn't know that Rogers drums were great drums. I bought them because I what well, I could afford. I went to the store, and there they were, and they were, and they looked nice. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna get these drums. You know, I was in a band and everything, and um, you know, I started the band in with my 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 homemade drums but then we got a gig and they fired me out of my own band from my own band actually that was the day that was the day i decided to get the paper out well here's the thing that's i i'm, I'm very curious like i think you I, I i i get your argument about the symbols being the last refuge but i'm very curious if your very first like experience in the world was like a really nice bosphorus symbol or a really lovely zildjian symbol that you, your whole worldview would be completely different you know like the fact that your first symbols were pie plates not super resonant like probably influenced the fact like you heard somebody else using ride symbol and there's like little jealousy you're like ah no i'm gonna get that you know yeah no it, but i do love of course i do love the symbols and my symbols are 
you know, I have very big and heavy symbols, mm-hmm. you know. I've always been a proponent of big symbols. Um, it's just kind of how I st- I feel like um, I can get a lot of different sonorities and sounds and things out of a bigger symbol, you know. I think the trend now is for uh, quicker sounding bright symbols i i actually i just hate that sound that mm. sound you know mm. i i want something that i can work with like i can you know like everything else josh i mean these days all i'm interested in is um is touch and feel and dynamics you know that that that's i'm not interested in content you know i'm not interested in what you play or mm. what to play i'm only interested in how you play it right you know right. I'm really interested in touch and feel and emotion and intent. You know, those are the things that are important to me. And, you know, well, Well, I was just going to say, I'm curious now. I mean, um, I, I'm, as you're talking, I'm having so many questions and I don't, I mean, we could just sit here and talk all day, but I, I, um, I'm curious for you and knowing where you ended up in terms of, you know, going to university of Buffalo as a student and meeting someone like Jan Williams and then, leaving the university setting and pretty much like, I remember you, like your touring stories are insane to me. Like you kind of like you were in the university setting and then you did the sort of like, you had your rumspringa and you're like, no, 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 I'm going to go out and do the, like, I'm going to go grind it out. And I'm, and I'm just kind of curious a little bit, like you can talk about how or much of what you want to, but I'm curious, like you get this drum set, like what was the path to take you to Jan Williams? And then after Jan Williams, how did you get stuck behind the iron curtain in Russia during the fall of the Soviet union? Like to me, those are big mile markers. And I want you to walk me through that. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, yeah, I, you know, I got my, then I got my drum set, the band rehired me and um, I started on my arc of playing the drums, playing in bands. So, and I, you know, I never had a drum lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned everything from records and from playing, you know, learn by doing. That was me. Um, so I never had a drum teacher. And I just played, listened, played, listened some more. And then um, then my dad died when I was 17. And mm-hmm. that, although I loved my dad, but the his... Um, his you know, the restraints on me were loosened right mm. so i i went to school and i was in i was at i went to the university of buffalo not only because i could only afford it it was close by right i couldn't go anywhere else so little did i know that jan williams and john cage or i didn't even know who these people were were there i went to become a dentist you know no shit i didn't father, know i didn't know that yeah, my father wanted me to be a dentist. So I went to be a dentist that even though he had died, his voice was still in my ear. I couldn't be a musician. I had to be, you know, something professional. Because mm-hmm. I was one of the first people in my entire extended family to to uh, go to college. Mm. Now, in fact, my cousin uh, recently gave me a... Uh, a genealogy from 1860 of my entire family, including five over 500, 600 people. And I went through this and not one of them is a, is an artist, only me. 
What's that whole like slick, like, you know, I, I crawled so you could walk. I walked so you could march. I marched so you could run like all of that thing. And then eventually, like if you have kids, you know, if you have, I mean, I don't know if you do or not, but, but I don't know if you know if you do or not, but, but there's like, eventually it comes back around and the artist has a child who's just like, I'm going to farm. You know, <laughs> and it starts all over the agrarian, you know, starts all over. I have a daughter. I, I have a daughter, and when she was 13, seeing my struggle, she just announced to me, apropos of nothing, one day, we walked out of the elevator and she said, You know, Daddy, I want to be an artist too, but I want to be a, a different kind of artist. Translation I'd like to make some money. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be the type of artist that grows their own food and can eat and yeah, sleep exactly. in his home and in bed by 9 p.m. That would be lovely. I respect what you're doing, but I don't want to do it. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I went, so I went to the University of Buffalo to become a dentist mm-hmm. and I would, um, but I find my, found myself drifting into the music department and listening to these concerts and I would start hearing these wild stuff, you know, Max Newhouse and, you know, Cage, and because they were all there. Legeron Hiller was there. Morton Feldman was there running the department, you know. Mm-hmm. Lucas Foss was there. And then they used to do these concerts called Evenings for New Music, where they'd do it in the Albright Knox Art Gallery in Buffalo, and they would be packed. And I just thought, this is the most bizarre music. I, I mean, I, I didn't even get it, right? And at the same time, a friends of mine who were turning me on to Monk and Mingus and Miles... And so these things were just colliding in this like R&B drummer kid's head, right? All this stuff. And um, and then, you know, I, I just realized I don't think I can be a dentist, you know? I, I, I really think I've, I've got to try to be a musician. So I, I, you know, I called up the music department and said, I would like to audition as a percussionist. Okay. Now I just want to say real quick, Bobby, that I I think there's a lot of people who have, I think there's a lot of people who should thank their lucky stars that you didn't become a dentist. It is really hard for me to imagine the frenetic energy that you have just in the way that you just are being inside someone's mouth with a sharp tool. Just as like, man, you really, you really got bumped the right down the right path, Bobby. I just wanted to sort of highlight that for people. Your life would be a lot different right now. I've never thought of it quite like that, but you're probably right. Your malpractice insurance would be through the roof. It'd be crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, I, I did my audition with Jan, and for some reason he took it. And, you know, so I was in the percussion department, and I was in the percussion ensemble. Now, I was just, I had started so late. I was just kind of a miserable percussionist. You know, I just wasn't very good percussionist, really, you know. I mean, you guys, that's, that's when I when I got a chance to work with you and, you know, the rest of the guys and so, you know, I would just like be, you know, I just would have so much, I was just astonished by the the skill level. It just was just kind of like through the, for me, it's like just through the roof, you know. Like I can, I could never do that. yeah but it's but it's like yeah but that's it's like if we were both in the olympics right bobby we're just in different events and you're usain bolt and like you're regularly hanging out with like john medeski and you know like i said earlier like people who are legit like surgeons in their field 
And then, like, I'm a professional speed walker, Bobby. Like, I'm really good at speed walking. But you're a sane bolt, for fuck's sake. Like, 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 we can hang out. It's okay. We're not better. It's just like we're, we're different. It's different sports, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I but I just all to say, you know, much respect, you know, because I yeah. know what that takes. I went through that. And I, I went through that program and watching you and Eric and, 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 and man, and Jason and, and Adam. It was just sort of like, wow, these guys. Also, I used to, I really, just as a side note, I really love the way you guys worked together. And I often like tell people, people would ask me about, well, what was it like to work with so? And, you know, besides the, oh, you know, those guys are a drag. That's all that. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what I really took away the most was I love the way you, 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 you have a rotating and floating, um, I won't say leader, but the way you go through music is you all, you sort of, there. it's so egoless and so wonderful and so, you know, I, I would watch you when you were rehearsing the percussion parts and terminals going, you know, I can't do that there. I'm sort of, I've got it there. I've got it for these kind of bars. Okay, and now I have it, and now I have it. And the way, because early on, if you don't remember, but I said, should we get Jan to mm-hmm. um, conduct it? And Jason said, you know, Bobby, we don't really work with a conductor. And I couldn't imagine how you were going to do this piece without a conductor, right? Mm. Uh, but you got you did. And I watched how you did it. So much respect. Well, it's, but, it's interesting. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I think you I, I think you'll agree with this, that like I, oftentimes I, I struggle when people are like when people say things like we need to like everything needs to be egalitarian and equal everything. There's no hierarchies ever in life. We need to break it all down. And I, I understand the arguments in, in a lot of the parts of society people are talking about. I get it. And I support those arguments, but within music, I hear that argument sometimes too. Like, let's just feel, we're going to feel it out. We're all going to make the decisions together. Have you ever looked at nature? Like look at a flock of geese, right? The, they're flying in the most efficient way possible to go the farthest way they can with the least amount of energy. There's not one bird always in front. They're all the rest of them are drafting. That happens mm-hmm. in the Tour de France too. There's a reason Lance Armstrong is not the one. Well, Lance is maybe a bad example, but there's a reason the lead, the yellow jersey guy, is not in front all the time because it takes right. a lot of energy. You're the person. You're the tip of the spear, splitting the air. You know, and exactly. and I think it's not maybe a conscious decision on our end. Like that's not what we thought early on. It's like, you know, it's be like a flock of geese, but it's life is just way easier that way. You get way farther with way less work. And, um, I see you work that way with John Medeski. Like when you guys talk about stuff, like, you know, maybe you don't say it in the same words, but you, you guys aren't just sort of like, Hey, you do whatever you want to do and I'll do whatever I want to do. And then we'll just sort of hope it works. See ya. You know, like, right. and there's a very, and there's a, as an improviser, it's a, there's a very, fine line you you know you sort of know uh, this way people who write for it's very difficult to write for improvisation actually mm-hmm. people don't think it is people just say oh i'm gonna write this and then just do what you want but you know that that rarely actually works you really have to know how to write for improvisation so the, obviously the first thing is you have to know the person you're writing for i know john i know what he does i know what what how, what alleys and what what roads to send him down where he will a be challenged but also f- find something that he could find something and where you know where the road won't be a dead end for him or the road will be too easy you know for mm-hmm. him you know there's always this fine line and when to have improvisation and when to not have improvisation 
So it's kind of, yes, it's kind of the same thing. So, you know, we, in that world, we know each other, you know, we know each other so well, we know how to, how to do it as you guys know how to, to put a piece of music together. So, I mean, you've just had that uh, conversation a million times. I mean, that's the thing when, when you talk about, when you talk about your, your, you know, you're at bats as a, as an artist, like playing in tiny little clubs and doing that, not twice. And then being like, okay, cool. I think I kind of know how that goes now. Like, no, you've done it thousands of times. And like, you've just had that conversation so much that you can use slang now with John Modeski. I keep saying John Modeski, you play with a million other people, but like, for me, that's where I saw that conversation happen the quickest with right. you, like that's when I was in the room, and it's like, oh wow, they're 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 using slang. I I kind of can get the gist of what they're saying because I've had a similar conversation in a different language with my friends. But you're having the conversation. That's my point. Right, and 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 it's understood. And you know, if you write one note too many, you can destroy the entire section. Right. If if, if you write one note too many in a section that's supposed to also be improvised, or you 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 can destroy the whole thing. It's really delicate balance, and that's part of the discussion. You know, hey John, what do you think about this? What do you want to do there? Like like, well, you know, you play this line, and then you you know this kind of thing, right? And they all and you know we all understand. Um, and yes, it it. It it's it's got a lot to do with just well, doing it. How much of your t- how much of your time? I'm curious if you could. And again, I'm asking the question. I don't know if this is true. How much of your time playing chamber music with Jan Williams at the University of Buffalo affected the way you played chamber music in a bar with, you know, a pickup group or your friends that you're, you know, that playing playing non sort of John Cage style contemporary percussion stuff. Do you did you sort of actively carry any of that over into the your touring life after school? That's an interesting question that no one ever asks me. No one. It's incredible that you asked that question because um, there is an answer. And uh, and I think what happened to me was I I came from, you know, being a drummer who, uh, you know, when you're drumming, you're playing a groove and you're playing time, right? To becoming a musician that a dr- that through the drum set is looking for something on top of the time or with the time I'm looking for melody and I'm looking for moments. You know, I think all those, um, the, the, the chamber music that I played with Jan and being in the percussion ensemble, um, were these, I came upon these incredible moments in these pieces. These pieces would go along and all of a sudden there'd be this two bars that I would just love, Mm. right? You just, two bars that just like go like, Oh my God, this is what, price of admission right here just these two bars do you know the piece right? rain tree no it's a, a japanese composer toru takamitsu and it's a it's a oh, sure. marimba two marimbas one vibraphone and there's crotales it's gorgeous look it up you'll love it it's a beaut. it's kind of like japanese minimal or impressionism i would say like it's gorgeous uh-huh. and it the whole piece is awesome and it's in this weird F sharp sort of minor thing. F sharps and A's come back a million times, and it's this weird harmonically ambiguous world. Gorgeous. The the last chord is a D flat major chord that kind of just appears out of nowhere and makes total sense. And it's like, <gasps> like you, you like you wait that whole time, and the most unexpected things come thing comes, and you're like, oh, I was sold before, but now, like, oh, that's so crazy. It's all because it, it was all set up, you know, all mm-hmm. E flat, 
are not created equally. Some are banal and some are sublime, mm. right? It just depends on what came before and what what the intent was and and what and and what comes after and or doesn't come after and what instrument play, you know, right? Mm-hmm. And they he set that up so so beautifully and. Though, though, so I, I sort of carry that, that. That's what I carried over from my years with Jan. And I wanted to play the drums in a different way. Mm-hmm. But I could play time. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting because I can always tell. I, I will say this. Um, after having said I was a miserable percussionist, I can usually tell when there's a percussionist who's playing a kit, Right. Because there's a certain way percussionists play a drum set, right? You know, and um, I would probably put, in- I would probably put myself in that category. Just to be quite honest, I mean, I know enough to be dangerous. Like I know enough to convince a lot of people that I know what I'm doing, but I don't know enough to convince you. Like, but we're friends, and you would never be mean to me. And I can, and I make up for it. Like I play steel drums, I can make up for it in other ways. But, but I'm, I'm saying that like what you what you're saying is true. Like it's just an objective truth. Because you can he- you hear the sound, the sound is different. It's maybe not necessarily bad, like an objectively bad thing, and it could be used in interesting ways, but it's a sound when you hear someone it's who doesn't grow up on that sound playing it, you know? It's something to do with the integration of all the disparate elements, elements we were talking about <clears throat> before. Right. There's something about, and I'm a drummer that, that uses percussionistic expressions in their drumming, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so, but it's it's all about melding it into sort of one, so it's all in one zone, kind of. And this is what I hear a lot of times if I'm hearing a percussionist play drums. It's interesting. It's very hard to describe, but I hear it, you know. It's mm-hmm. very hard to describe, but I hear the elements. It's almost like I hear the elements too much. Mm. And I don't hear the integration of the elements Enough. I think it goes so, back to what you were saying earlier. Like we were talking about the very beginning about the drum set being this thing that isn't like on a clarinet where a low E flat and a high E flat are homogenous. Like you can't treat the drum set like a keyboard, like like low, right. medium, high, medium, low. Like no, no, no. It's it's boom, crack, psst, crack, boom. Like those are those are three wildly different characters. Yes. Somehow you have to make those sound almost like a keyboard. Right. Well, you have to balance. You have to mix it on the fly. You have to mix. Yes, and this is what I've been into lately on the drum set: internal dynamics. This is another thing: the internal dynamics of the drum set, not the general dynamics of the whole drum set. But what happens when you're constantly adjusting the internal dynamics of the drum set? What happens when you're constantly pulling back the the riot cymbal and 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 your left hand is going back for that? So all the balance of the drum set becomes this wavy thing that's moving around through time and through space, but the dynamics of changing the changing of the dynamics slightly on the drum set is a world unto itself. It opens up a completely different um, way of thinking about the sound. How much, how much of, again, I'm piecing together things here that possibly that makes sense to me, but I'm curious if they do to you. Like you, I remember you telling a story about how you would, uh, they, you used to, 
I don't know if it's mastering or mixing or something where you like, okay, we're going to do a mix and you do the automation in real time. Like you're, you have one hand on this fader and you're doing these things and it's like you get through the whole thing. And if you mess up one ride, you got to go back and do it again. And then that's slightly unique, but it's kind of like, am I, did you tell me that story or am I thinking of someone else? I told it's not, it's you're, you're close. I told you a story about mixing something like that. It's a Joe, Joe Furla story. Yes. Yeah. But it's, it's like, awesome. it, it reminds me of the way you play drum set. Like you're constantly yeah. like you're, you have your finger on all of the faders and you're constant, like a puppet trying to sort of, you know, mix it in real time. Right. Cause it does need to be mixed in real time because otherwise it's just, it's flat. <laughs> it has no dimensionality. Right. Mm. You, you know, mm. it, it doesn't have, it doesn't have the depth. It's, it's just there in front of your face, right? right? And so when when you're moving, well, what do you know? Was did Gorecki say at a workshop he came and he played this polychord and he, and, he, and boom and he said that's a form and then he played boom the same chord exactly but quietly and he said that's another form, that's another form, that's super interesting. It's not the same thing quieter. It's it's totally different. Mm-hmm. It's another form completely, mm-hmm. and I think that's the mindset that I'm I'm. This is what I'm thinking. You know, when you're when you're varying the the internal dynamics of the instrument, right? I mean, everybody pianists do this. You know, I, I listen to Jamie Saf play piano, and he's doing a run up, and it's not all the same. You know, it's it, it it's not all the same volume or touch, even or intent. You know, it's all. You know, I got a chance to play with some great uh, trumpeters like, you know, Lou Soloff and, and Jack Walrath. And these these people, it wasn't that they could play fast or they had a lot of, of course, they did. Lou Soloff was first called trumpet player for many years. Remember, he was in Blood, Sweat and Tears mm-hmm. before the trumpeter in Blood, Sweat and Tears before uh, he, he had a whole career as first called trumpet player. But when you played with him, every note had a different color. Mm. He'd do a run and all the notes would just, the colors would be changing just, just very subtly, but changing. That's another level. Yeah. You know, that is another level of music. Well, I'm curious. I mean, you got that. Uh, I mean, uh, you've always had that s- sound in your, or that, that approach in your head in terms of my work with you. And I'm curious with your touring. I mean, one of the things that drummers I think have to deal with more so than I keep, talking about clarinets but let's just stick with the let's 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 just piss off every clarinetist in the world right now but a clarinetist doesn't have to backline a clarinet never backlines a clarinet like the symphony like when when the cleveland orchestra goes on tour they're not like sending backline riders to the local rental company saying i need an e-flat clarinet like but a drummer maybe maybe you'll bring your cymbals most drummers do but i don't right so you play what's there and so not only do you have to rebuild your instrument from the ground up now you have an instrument where your kick might be a way drier than you're used to and you now have to not only mix on the fly but you have to overcompensate on an instrument that now you have to turn the gain way up on that you never had to do before like now you have to kick it way harder than you used to and that, but I that don't well i know but there's a there's a whole you have to recalibrate and i'm curious for you i mean you mentioned the thing like uh no special drums <laughs> Is like part of your demand on your backline rider. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach, like you have that whole, your ideology, right? Of how you want to play sound, but then how does that graft onto the, when the rubber meets the road? Well, simply, I don't force the instrument to do something it doesn't want to do. Mm. You know, it's like, okay, in that 
specific instrument of, uh, instance. If I get a, a, a bass drum that's particularly dry or that I don't really like the sound of, or I have to change the way I play to accommodate the instrument. I'm never going to make that bass drum do what this bass drum does. Mm -hmm. And why mm -hmm. should it, you know? So uh, this is why I find it kind of interesting and exciting. It, sometimes it's a drag, don't get me wrong, but interesting and exciting to get a new set of drums and cymbals every night. Because every night I'm presented with a new palette and I have to figure out how to make that integrate that into what the music I'm doing at the moment, but it's going to be different. So I don't, I don't, the way I compensate and I try to, I don't really think about it as compensation. Mm. I just changed it. Like, let's say I have a beautiful snare drum. Well, you know, that night I might be playing a lot more snare drum than everything else. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm, I might be, I'm, I'm certainly not going to play the same way I play if I had my drums or the drums from the night before, you know, I'm going to completely change how I'm going to approach the music through the instrument that I, you know, that I have, that it's presented to me. I'm curious. I mean, some of it, too. I mean, I, I'm as I'm asking the question, I totally I mean, what your answer makes total sense to me. And I think I would have rephrased the question to be like in my experience, uh, like I had a really bad experience. We showed up to gig. We backlined a marimba and they provided uh, an instrument that who's. I'm not going to name it. No, 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 no. It wasn't a clarinet. It was a, it was, oh, okay. it was a, <laughs> no, I had, it was a marimba. And, you know, I'm not going to name any companies, but the, 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 it was a very dry marimba to begin with, but the resonator caps were off because it was a practice instrument at a high school. So it was just like hitting a tabletop and we were playing mallet quartet. And oh. so like, as you were saying your answer, it's like, you know, that's absolutely works. But I couldn't in that week in that moment. Well, I can't say we couldn't. We didn't make the decision to play Malak Quartet incredibly softly because my instrument just had no volume. I had to play way louder and heavier just to even make it resemble the sound everybody else was bringing, and that Steve Reich wants in his music. So there is a like in the. It, I'm not saying that you can't do both in both worlds, but the improvisational world that's a slightly easier fish to fry. Oh. No, that is very different situation. You're playing music that's written by a composer who mm -hmm. expects it to sound a certain way. That's completely different. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I, I should have prefaced that. Of course, in my world, I'm you know there's wiggle, lots of wiggle room, right? Mm -hmm. And like if you're in that situation, that's tough because then, sure, if if in a in a in a different world, you could have just said, let's just play this whole piece, but a triple pianissimo. You know, it would just be different, right? Yeah. <laughs> But the composer would be like freaking out, right? So, uh, very. That's very well, interesting. for you. What's what's your what's the most important thing? I think that what's the most important thing you think you've learned for, that that has come out of the the singular experience of just being on the road and gigging. For me, it's been like, oh, actually, rhythm and time, like having good time and a good sense, like that's kind of if nothing, if that doesn't happen, nothing else matters. And being on the road, being in different halls, playing on different instruments, playing with different people, to me, it's like, oh, wow, okay. I always got to come back to that no matter what. And that was something that mm -hmm. I specifically learned by being on the road and being in the room with various musicians that I had to perform with at the drop of the hat, like you. Um, I'm curious for you, what was the thing, what did you learn being on the road that you didn't learn in school? Well, there's millions of things that are, you know, like funny and, and uh, practical about, like about hotels, but I, you're talking <laughs> about music. So, 
What I learned, basically, the most important thing, I think, was that I have to come to every situation naked. I, 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 I cannot bring any, every night, I cannot bring any of the last night or the next night or last year with me, ever. No clothes that I've worn already. I have to come with like a, you know, okay. And now I'm in a different hall with a different audience. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget mm -hmm. the audience. A different vibe from the audience, from the people, and a different instrument, maybe different musicians I'm playing with, maybe mm -hmm. not, you know, but certainly they feel differently. It was a different train ride. Maybe <laughs> I was upset that day. Maybe, right? All kinds maybe the of Soviet Union was falling. Yeah, maybe the Soviet Union was... was I just wanted to prompt you again there. I want to get to that at some point. <laughs> and, and so, you know, you... I learned that I must, I must shed all those things and start fresh every night and, and really, really use these, mm. really mm. listen to what's going on. What is actually happening in this hall at this moment? You know, mm. what is actually mm. happening? How am I going to tune my drums for the music, for the acoustics, for the, my mood, for what the drums want, for, you know, there's a thousand different things. So it, that's what I learned. That's, no two nights are the same at I, all. I think that's, I mean, that's, it's, it's always interesting to hear you talk about the stuff that you, like in your, your energy, I feel like that's one thing about you that if I were to sort of, you know, at your funeral, when I stand up to talk about you, Bobby, um, I'm, I don't want to, I just, so you know, the words amazing drummer are not going to be the things, the first things out of my mouth. It's going to be like, you have no idea what it was like to stand next to that jet engine that only shoots out flowers, you know, like, like you have, like, it's like, that's what I'm going to say. Like you are, you're, you, you have this ins insatiable like drive, um, that, applies to everything, not just drumming. And I think you're, I, 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 I kind of am jealous that I didn't get to be on the road with you. Like during, during the like pre internet days and just grinding it out. I think it would have, you know, all right, act, you know, iron sharpens iron. So, well, Hey, I want to, I want to ask you before I want to, I want to, I want to end with the Soviet union story, but I want to ask you real quick. Um, you're a composer too. And we mentioned terminals a few times along the way. Um, and you know, I don't, uh, I want to just ask you, you are somehow able to get away with things like Caroline Shaw gets away with writing triads that very few people can get away with. You get mm -hmm. away with writing for whip crack and spoons and you get away with it and it makes total sense. And I never, I have not been able to figure out how. And the only thing I keep coming back to is what I just said. You commit to it. And I'm curious if for you, like, like, is there anything you've committed to that just didn't work? Because so far, I've been asked to do some of the most insane shit by you, and somehow it always works. You know, I scream hee and crack a whip like five or six times. And, and, and do it well. And it makes sense. That's the thing that's so goddamn confusing about you, Bobby. So how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, you know, but that's, that's – it's, it's, it's absolutely what, what you've just said. I mean, you – if – if you don't show total commitment all the time, then people are, you know, people know that people pick up on that. Mm -hmm. And from the musician that you're asking to do something to with, 
and to the audience, you know. So you have to believe in it. You know, you like you said, you have to. It's it's a one hundred percent. You know, you're just giving blood all the time. Why? Why not? Why? Why give ninety five percent? Why? Why? Why coast? Give it all, man. Just like. You know, you're not, you're not going to hear that long. You know, just give the whole enchilada all the time. Knowing your <laughs> Italian upbringing, I think – I'm sorry. I just – like I remember the very first whip crack lesson I got from you. It might have – like you were like, here's how you crack a whip. Go practice it. And then you were like, now here's how you hee Like I want you to think of a spaghetti western. <laughs> And like, yeah. and I, I was like, what does that even mean? I don't even know what that means. Like I have spaghetti. I've, had, I've seen Westerns, but, and you did this he and, and I just remember like going like, like looking around the room, <laughs> trying to figure out where it came from. I was like, oh, okay. All right. Fair enough. It's like, that, you, that's, that's what he means. Yeah. Yeah. I still, well, you know, that's from Ennio Morricone, you know, from uh, like all those, uh, you know, all the great Western soundtracks, the spaghetti Westerns. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm, I think too. I think your experience with John Cage. Um, I mean, a lot of in the in the wrong hands, approaching instruments, you know, like a conch shell or you know, or a whip crack. It can be seen as kitschy because I think a lot of people do treat it as kitsch. But you treat John Cage treated the conch shell like someone else might treat the violin. It's a sound. It works or it doesn't. And. Yeah. and- you have to set it up, but that that whip crack is, I think, is well set up. You know, mm-hmm. you've got this whole, all this stuff goes on, and then you sort of like, well, what could possibly be next? I know, <laughs> a guy walking out, yelling with a, well, don't forget the maracas. Oh by yeah, the way. like a, a rattlesnake. For the rattlesnake snake and a whip in the right hand and whipping and screaming. Well, of course, that makes perfect sense, right? But you have to sort of, right, exactly. It has to feel inevitable, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, of course, this is what should happen. Yeah, you know, you don't know what it is before as a listener, but then when you see it, you should say, oh my, that's right. It's so fun <laughs> to see the the production managers at the, like at, at um, uh, where'd we premiere it? It wasn't Miller Theater. It, um, oh, it was Merkin. Miller Theater. The ICA Merkin, Merkin, Merkin yeah. and uh, like as soon you know they had because they were doing new sounds live, right? Like it was being streamed live or something, and they had all those mics strung up and ha- hanging like six feet above our heads. And yeah. I've got this whip crack, right? And I don't, you know, I'm good enough at it, but I, I'm not a marksman. Like I could have brought that whole thing crashing down, you know, on the third, yeah. you know, fourth movement before Medeski even comes out. And I could just see all the production managers running to like update their liability insurance, whatever you know. There's like some part, part, Neumann's, Neumann's, but then some 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 audience goer has their eye taken out because you know new music, oh, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, it should be dangerous, right? That's what Lucas. <laughs> well, I, I want to. Um, you there's. I think these two things are related to you. You said something at Sosi that, uh, and it was very close to your talk about your Russian your Russia story or your Soviet Union story. You talked about being a musician um, as being a stockbroker or a fireman. And, um, and you sort of talked about those two approaches as like one being the planner, a good stockbroker. <laughs> Let's just be clear. A good stockbroker, someone who plans for the long haul, you don't short your stocks because short term gains are not a sustainable. They're not a healthy approach to life or music, music making firemen. On the other hand, it's not a sustainable approach to plan for the long term when you walk in a building and stick to that because you walk up to a doorknob and if it's red hot, just because you plan to go through that door, it's not wise to go through it. 
Like, mm-hmm. so you've got to make a different decision. Um, and I'm curious the kind, of, the kind of decisions you can make, right? I'm, I'm curious for you. Can you talk about that for two seconds and then somehow tell the story of the, have, the Soviet Union? I have to say the Soviet Union for the next podcast. No, but, Bobby, we got to, <laughs> I'm obsessed uh, with that story and I, I want to hear uh, it. But, uh, you know, it, no, it was all about like they did this study about, you know, where they took um, firefighters and stockbrokers and they had two contests, the fire doing stocks, selling and buying stocks and both of them. So the firefighters would have to go up against the stockbrokers in stock fighting, uh, buying. And then the stockbrokers would go up against the um, firefighters in firefighting right mm-hmm. and stock so what happened was the of course the stockbrokers were better at selling stocks but not by that much but the firemen were way better with fire fighting a fire and that's because of the way they make decisions a firefighter doesn't make doesn't wait this is the essential thing and this is what's essential about improvisation a firefighter doesn't wait for the best possible decision to come you can't wait so what a firefighter does is looks around, assesses the situation, and makes the best decision at that moment he could make. And I would say that's so, true not just for improvisation, but in a bigger picture, just live music. Like playing live is a different thing than rehearsing. Yes, very much. And you make you, but then you make another decision. So you get to that point. You step on that piece of wood, and then you, you search the landscape again. And then you make another, and that's how you go through. You don't wait for the perfect decision. And as I like to, you know, oftentimes I say in my improvisation workshops, which, you know, I give an improvisation workshop now every, every year in the summer, this year it's online. Mm -hmm. um, Of course, Um, when you're, when you're starting to play a piece of music and I think even an improvised piece of music and even a not improvised piece of music, always endeavor to see the end from the beginning. So what you're always trying to do is as you start to try to, to, to see the end, to hear the end and almost kind of play backwards, hmm. you know? So, but, but the end is always moving. It's a moving goalpost, right? Hmm. So just depending on what you do. So then you do this and then you have to scan again. You scan the landscape again. Now, where's the end? Now, what's the arc of the piece? Hmm. Now, where's hmm. the end? You know, and this way, you know, you're playing, you're improvising and you're playing in general has a lot more structural integrity Mm -hmm. because you're not just it's not just this, 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 whatever right in front of you. You're you're having a picture, a bigger picture and and you have dimensionality again. Right. right? You're making a you're making a conscious choice to depart from your goal. Rather than in a live music setting, that con- that decision isn't always conscious. Sometimes you have to, like you, you know, choosing to break a rule is different than having to break a rule. And right. and the goal has to always shift, right? Because you don't know what the end. You don't know what it's going to be like at the end, right? You know, you're right. just speculating. It's important to speculate. It's important to sort of feel the end feel the end so it's not just a succession of these moments that it's you know that you are somehow putting that together into one whole you know yeah well i it's, think you know, I, I, that approach that's something that has lodged in my that is a that's a thing that's stuck in my craw in a in chats you've in just hearing you talk and i i just i appreciate that sentiment it's something i've said in lessons it's that i've said it in coachings many many times i don't know if your ears were burning when i said it but i i 
I don't. I try to cite you when I ha- when I when I use it just to be clear. I don't want to make money off of your uh, your ideas, but um, uh, but uh, <laughs> but I'm curious. Um, just to sort of my now, I want to have my dessert here in my conversation with you. Um, you told a story about how I feel like you know you you are on the road and you got stuck behind the iron curtain during the fall of the Soviet Union and your firefighter analogy here strikes me as very like you really you had an end goal in mind which was to get out from to get to a gig is that right <laughs> well yeah i had to get to sardinia i had a gig with uh tim burn and you know the i had been in moscow 9 days and a coup hit and um you know, they were freaking out. The, 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 I was doing music for the Moscow Circus, which eventually went to Broadway. And um, I, I was rehearsing the band and you know, everything was groovy. And I had my hotel, Rosha, you know, uh, which had, you know, 89 billion floors. Every other floor had a bar. And, um, you know, every day my, 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 I would have a, a champagne and um, every morning I would have a champagne and caviar breakfast with my interpreter. You know, I think it was a dollar fifty. <laughs> you know, and then she would come, and we would have a nice breakfast, and then we would drive to the. And one day we came, and we saw tanks around the Kremlin because this hotel overlooked the Kremlin. And I said, "Is that normal?" She said, "No." And there was the coup, Gorbachev. So, long story short, um, two nights later, when I had to, to leave, uh, right before I left, they uh, imposed a curfew, so we weren't supposed to be on the street. But I had to get to the airport, so I had to be on the street. So what followed was a whole evening all through the night of us drinking champagne and her trying to get me a ride to the airport. She got me like five or six rides to the airport. And then they would call back and go, no, I'm too scared. No, I'm drunk. He's drunk. No, the KGB won't let me. I don't know. All this stuff. Like, you you have a ride. And I said, great. Let's have another drink. And then, no, you don't have a ride. And I was like, no, no. Got to give me a ride. You know, so finally she got me a ride. Some brave soul who was going to drive me. Uh, and um, guy showed up. This little, you know, Skoda taxi cab. And I said to her, you know, from the backseat, I said, you know, I've got Finnmarks, Deutschmarks, dollars, everything he needs. Just give me to the airport, whatever he wants, I've got, you know, hard currency, no problem. So, you know, we're driving, we're driving, we're driving. It's quite far to the airport from Moscow. How old are you now at this point? Oh, I was forty, maybe thirty-nine, forty. Okay, maybe I was something like that. And um, and we get to this uh, checkpoint with this, you know, the little Skoda putters up to 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 to, to this gigantic modern tank. Like a modern tank is really big, Josh. You know how you see those <laughs> tanks on the on the Village Green, like those little World War weather. No, modern tank is enormous, and this little thing and there's something burning a car burning in the background and the, and you know the guy gets out and they wouldn't let us through and i was like he's gonna take you back to the hotel i said no i said no you gotta you know let us through and so he you gotta argue with him give him more money more money so he took this all these back roads and got to another checkpoint and uh, they let us through but you know, that's the like Reader's, Reader's Digest version. But, you know, right before they let us through, they came up to the car with the, you know, with the machine guns and they were just right up against my window and, you know, both sides. And she looked at me and she said she was a little like Natasha from Bullwinkle. You remember Bullwinkle? <laughs> mm-hmm. She called me darling. 
She was just like Natasha. And she was tall, too. It was just the same thing. And she looked at me and said, so, darling, are you nervous? And I was actually kind of drunk by that time and, you know, kind of like digging it like, wow, this is Bobby Predator from Niagara Falls. And now I'm in like, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to the airport. And there's a, a, a machine gun like next to me. And this is actually kind of cool. It's, I know it's weird and I should be worried. But Your poor dad I, is just rolling over in his grave like, what did I do wrong? <laughs> and she said to me, she looked me right in the face and she said, Good, darling. Do not be nervous, but do not move and do not say anything. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay. You know, and I just, and so finally, finally I got out. The airport was like a little city. We're stepping over people. She bribed to get me to the front of the line. Everything was like, you know, we bribed, no problem. Bribed, you know, and I got to the front of the line and I, I got to my gig. I had no drumsticks and I had to borrow Elvin Jones's mallets um, and Max Roach's brushes and drumsticks to play my gig. That's that amazing. was something. I've, I've been to Russia twice. The chi, the in Elvin Jones's mallets, I can't even, like, I picked them up and it was just like, what, what? <laughs> they want to do what? You know, yeah, it was so unbelievable. <laughs> I've been to Russia twice and um, I, we had an, S- I mean, it was not, it was, this is now, this is post-Soviet, the fall of the Soviet Union. It was, it was much safer, but what, uh, we had translators too. And the thing about that was so, like, that was my first, like, cultural shock. I mean, it was, I think, 2007, my first time out of the country, really, other than being in Trinidad. And, but it's in Russia, not, you know, Russian is not related to any other language. Like, if you speak Italian, you can go to Spain and be like, you can get by. Like, there's enough of overlap, you know, but you're in Russia. So our translator gets out, and she's taking us to the airport, right? And she gets out, and some guard comes up, and they're screaming at each other. Screaming. Gesticulating wildly, and her face is beat red, and they're yelling. And we're like, oh, my God. We're never going to get out of here. And she comes back. We're like, what's the matter? And he and she's like, oh, he was just saying there's no more half and half at the deli. So if you want half and half, you have to go to the next terminal or something. It was like, <laughs> like, y'all need to, like, I know your history is really complicated, but let's just, let's take it down to like a six. We're at like 11 all the time. <laughs> well, hey, Bobby, I uh, am really grateful for your time. Um I'm grateful to have you as a friend, and I wish we could hang out more often, but I hope we can get together in the same room sooner than later. Me too. I Please tell all the boys, you know, give them all my best. Will you? I will do that. All your, all your crew. I love all of you guys, and, you know, thank you. It was really fun. We'll give your best to Andrea and, and your, side of the, your side of the family over there, and um, we'll talk soon, my friend. All right, man. Bye-bye. All right. See you, buddy. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast was brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com, L-I-Q-U-I-D-R-U-M.com, run by Todd Meehan down there in Waco, Texas. Good content, awesome merch, funny. You won't regret it. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. And also, Dunleavy, Dunleavy Steelpans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes amazing steel pans. Check him out, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Okay, I will talk to you soon. Please be nice to each other. Take care, be safe, and stay healthy. Take it easy.